The dab is dead. The dab is dead. And not because Cam Newton, the star quarterback who popularized the dab, he is not the one who killed it. Just because Cam Newton sulked away after a press conference, soaked in defeat, remorse, frustration, that didn't kill the dab. That didn't kill the most popular dance celebration we've seen in years. No, that's not what killed it. Roger Goodell killed the dab. That's right. When Roger Goodell goes onto ABC and does the dab, it's over. When a man like Roger Goodell imitates a star player dancing, him of all people, Roger Goodell is the ultimate vapid politician. He is a cigar store wooden Indian. If you opened up Roger Goodell's face, it would just be circuitry. He's not a real person. It was like the NFL owners, all 32, got together with a Dr. Frankenstein-like individual who specialized in political robotics, and they created Roger Goodell in a chamber. So when that guy, that stiff corporate automaton, walks onto a television stage and does the dab, it is over. The celebration is dead. You can no longer do it. It makes no sense at that point. If that person feels compelled to dab, it's done. The only people now that can dab are those that are ages 1 through 10, because it's still cute, and those age 70 and older, because that's also cute. So if you're really old, it's cute. If you're really young, it's cute. Anyone in between, we can't dab. It's over. And I'm glad that Roger Goodell isn't charismatic. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Roger Goodell is missing the one ingredient that a lot of politicians do have. He checks most of the boxes. He's disingenuous. He never says anything interesting. He never says anything controversial. He is very careful with all of his public statements. He takes great care in sticking to his talking points. No one sticks to their talking points better than Roger Goodell. So in that way, Dr. Frankenstein, the Dr. Frankenstein that the NFL owners hired to build Roger Goodell, in that way, they made the perfect politician to lead this sports cartel to be the public face of this sports cartel. They made the perfect guy. But like anything, when you make something in a lab, when something is artificial, there is some unnatural quality to it. And you can see it with Roger Goodell. It's the way he moves. It's the way he speaks. It's the way he interacts. Something isn't right. It's something in the wiring that's just not quite human. We would all agree. I mean, th there are very few things that everyone agrees about in this country, but we would all agree with that that Roger Goodell isn't quite human. If we put that out to a poll, it would come back 100% unanimous. Because if you make something artificial, you're never able to make it quite like real natural life. And what's Roger Goodell missing? What's the one ingredient missing is charisma. And I know the NFL owners are kicking themselves. Why didn't we think about charisma when we were talking to Dr. Frankenstein about this monster that we've created? This robotic leader of our sports cartel. Why didn't we think about the charisma piece? That was the ingredient that was missing from the chamber when he walked out stiffly. And he said, something's missing. It's charisma. And thank God. I mean, we should thank the Lord. I'm an atheist. But thank the Lord. Thank the energy force of the universe that Roger Goodell isn't charismatic. Imagine if Roger Goodell was charismatic. Oh, oh, we would be screwed. If Roger Goodell was John Calipari, oh boy, we would be, oh, who knows where we would be right now?
Who knows how many NFL players would be suffering in silence with CTE. If Roger Goodell was charismatic, that lawsuit would have never happened. I mean, I don't know what would have happened. I don't know where the NFL players would be right now in terms of rights, in terms of quality of a working environment. They would be forced to play 24 games at this point. It would be a 24-game regular season. Because now we know whenever Roger Goodell speaks, we know he's full of shit because he's just not quite right with his delivery. He's not charismatic. But if he was charismatic and he could sell us on this crap, the Super Bowl was crap. It was a bad game. And I love how people come at me when I talk about how the NFL needs to emphasize the passing game and de-emphasize the running game. Pass rules that continue to protect receivers and prevent holding, which would in turn make the passing game more efficient, the running game less efficient, and it would improve player safety and increase scoring. And that would make for more entertaining football. And the faux loyalists come at me. The faux football traditionalists come at me. No, you can't do that. That's not football. That's not real football. You can't do that. That's not real football. You're, we need real football. That's not real football. That's two-hand touch. Can't be two-hand touch. It should be real football. Real. And then these same people complain that the Super Bowl was bad football. And why? Because there wasn't a lot of scoring. There weren't a lot of touchdowns. You didn't see feats of athletic brilliance by the offensive players because they were being shut down by the defensive players. That's what happens. When the defenders have the upper hand, the players on offense can't execute feats of athletic brilliance, score points, and give you something to enjoy on your television screen. It's not as entertaining. A 35-31 game is always going to be infinitely more entertaining than a 10-7 game. And some of the same football traditionalists complaining that the game was not as exciting as it should have been last night are the same people that will come out and say, well, football has stopped being real football. You can't tackle people anymore. You need to be able to hit people anywhere on their body and concuss them at any time on the field. <laughs> Unbelievable. But if Roger Goodell was charismatic, who knows where the NFL would be right now in terms of player safety. I shudder to think about it. Every day I wake up thinking, thank God Roger Goodell isn't charismatic. Speaking of uncharismatic, oh, those meatheads in the booth were at it again, talking about the chess match. The chess match between the defensive coordinators, because there certainly was no chess match going on between the offensive coordinators. There was no offense. The chess match in this particular game was between the defensive coordinators. Yes, moving the chess pieces around. The inanimate objects, also known as human beings on the football field. Yes, yes. But in this way, I think if you think about the mechanics of a chess match, a chess master wants to exploit the mistakes of his opponent exploit the flaws in his opponent's game. I think we would agree that's where football and chess intersect. That notion, that path to winning is the same. And so people asked me, who is going to win the game? And I said, I don't know. It's the NFL leading up to the Super Bowl. How many times did people ask me, who, who do you got? Who do you got in the game? Who do you got? I don't know. I don't know who's going to win. Nobody knows. It's a useless conversation. If you were trying to predict who is going to win, the question you would ask yourself is, which team has the most exploitable flaw? And if we knew that, then we could start to predict who would win, but we didn't know that going in. I thought Peyton Manning was the single most exploitable flaw between the two teams, that the Denver Broncos quarterback 
was the fatal flaw that would lead to the demise of the Broncos and help the Carolina Panthers win. That was my understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of the two teams, and I was wrong. The most exploitable weakness between the two teams was the Carolina Panthers' offensive line, specifically right tackle Mike Remmers and left tackle Michael Orr. Oh, God, Michael Orr. This is ironic, right? I mean, of all the things in this world that are ironic, I mean, this is ironic. That Michael Orr, of all players, couldn't protect Cam Newton's blind side? <laughs> can't make this up. Someone should really write a book about this. We'll call it the blind side. It'll be about Michael Orr. <laughs> oh, it's already been written. What? Huh? How's that possible? I have the book in front of me, actually. It's by Michael Lewis. It's a good book. I recommend it. The blind side, the book is about Michael Orr and how he came from poverty in Nashville, was adopted by a family, eventually went to the University of Mississippi and became a highly touted, highly graded NFL offensive line prospect. The book starts, though, by explaining the notion of the blind side, where the notion of the blind side comes from. And according to Michael Lewis, he believes that the idea that you have to protect the quarterback's blind side came from Lawrence Taylor. And at one specific event when Lawrence Taylor broke the leg of Joe Theismann. And he writes, the game of football evolved. And here was one cause of its evolution. A new kind of athlete doing new kinds of things. All by himself, Lawrence Taylor altered the environment and forced opposing coaches and players to adapt. Was it Lawrence Taylor specifically who was the impetus for this evolution in the NFL? Maybe. I'll buy it. But opposing coaches and players, after experiencing the wreckage that Lawrence Taylor can inflict on their quarterback, their backfield, their team, NFL teams had to find a response the natural ebb and flow of evolution is one side adapts to the other, adapts to the other side, which adapts to the other side, and there's this constant competition between the two sides, competing for resources, competing for victory, however you want to think about it. If a new evolution occurs, then an adaptation on the other side must also occur to counterbalance. So naturally, the response to Lawrence Taylor evolved as well the prototypical left tackle. And Michael Lewis believes that the prototypical left tackle is described as big, massive in the thighs specifically, long arms, giant hands, and nimble quick feet. If you look back through NFL history, the player that exemplifies the prototypical NFL left tackle would be someone like Orlando Pace, Jonathan Ogden. Those would be the two best examples of the prototypical NFL left tackle that has since evolved in response to the Lawrence Taylor prototype. Michael Lewis goes on, the price of protecting quarterbacks was driven by the same forces that drove the price of other kinds of insurance. It rose with the value of the asset insured. As the risk posed to the asset increased, so too did the value of the asset protection. The asset being the quarterback and the protection being the left tackle. And the left tackle soon became, by 2004, the second highest paid position on the field only after quarterback. So since 2004, it's been over 10 years, the left tackle has been the most important asset on the football field other than quarterback. And what's the one asset that the Carolina Panthers decided they weren't going to invest in? Tackle! Tackle! Of all the positions, of all the assets, 
you have one of the most valuable assets in all of the NFL. In fact, the NFL voted the guy you have in your backfield taking snaps, Cam Newton, the most valuable player in the entire league. So you have the most valuable player in the entire league playing the quarterback position. And for more than 10 years, it's been widely understood that your next highest investment to protect the crowning jewel of your franchise, the quarterback, should be your tackles, your left tackle and your right tackle. And again, this is ironic. I know this is this show is soaked in irony, but the player that you chose to protect the most valuable asset in the league happens to be one of the worst left tackles in the league, happens to be Michael Orr, the player the entire book, The Blind Side, revolved around. That is rich. Oh. And a guy named Mike Remmers. Who is Mike Remmers? I have no idea. That's a problem. It's a problem. So if we're going back in time and trying to understand what happened, what happened is the Denver Broncos exploited the greatest weakness between the two teams, the Carolina Panthers offensive line. You play that game over and over again, Denver is going to win that game more than Carolina is going to win that game because Carolina was the team with the most exploitable weakness, not Denver. I really did think it was going to be Peyton Manning. I thought Peyton Manning would be the Denver Broncos' downfall, just like he was two years earlier in the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks, but that was not the case. Even though Peyton Manning was only 13 for 23, for only 141 yards, a terrible, a truly awful performance by a Super Bowl quarterback, the bottom line is he only had one interception. And that was really all that mattered. Because two weeks earlier against the Carolina Panthers, Russell Wilson had two interceptions. And those two interceptions led to touchdowns, which was a big reason why the Seattle Seahawks lost to the Carolina Panthers two weeks ago. And Peyton Manning didn't have multiple interceptions. And because Peyton Manning didn't have multiple interceptions, the Denver Broncos won. Peyton Manning was not the fatal flaw. He could have been. Carolina defenders got their hands on a number of footballs. You play that game 100 times, there will be outcomes where Carolina has four interceptions. There will be. They could have had four interceptions last night. It just didn't happen. But I think if you watch that game, and I did, I watched that game carefully, Peyton Manning wasn't a problem. He was just a guy out there. The problem was Michael Orr, and the problem was Mike Remmers. Those were real problems. And that's why Carolina lost. But Cam Newton can't say that in the press conference. He's not going to walk up there and say, I'll tell you why we lost. We'll make this easy so I can get out of here. We lost because our general manager thought Mike Remmers and Michael Orr was adequate protection for me against Von Miller, DeMarcus Ware, and company. What? When you think about it like that, when you distill it down to that, hey, Carolina general manager, do you think Mike Remmers and Michael Orr are adequate to stop DeMarcus Ware and Vaughn Miller and allow you to win a Super Bowl? The answer would be no. It really was that simple. But Cam Newton can't say that because we won't allow Cam Newton to be honest in press conferences. The sports media complex, the majority of fans, they want to live in the matrix. They crave disingenuous behavior. Most of you do. You don't think so. You don't wake up in the morning and go, man, I can't wait to have some disingenuous behavior in my life today. But you do crave it. 
And I know you crave it because you want Cam Newton to go up on the podium after the game and fake it. You want him to be affable. You want him to be something that he's not feeling. You want him to have false emotions. You want him to be an actor on stage who's actually miserable inside, pretending to be affable in defeat. That's what you want. You want Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is affable in defeat, even though way down deep inside, he doesn't feel like being nonchalant and charming. He feels frustrated and brooding, but he can't show that. He's trained himself, like Roger Goodell, to never show his true emotions. Cam Newton hasn't done that. I hope he never does that. I hope you people never get to him. And that he can continue to be honest and show us what he's really feeling in these moments that we have a window into. Which I don't believe we deserve a window into. But the NFL is giving us a window into these moments. And Cam Newton is providing us with honesty. And most NFL quarterbacks do not. Peyton Manning certainly doesn't. Peyton Manning isn't that guy. He's not the nice, charming, affable, oh shucks character. He's not. The people that I know that have met Peyton Manning off the field have said that he is a dick. I have a specific anecdote about Peyton Manning. I was in Las Vegas, and some of my friends, we pooled our money, and we hired a host that would help us get into clubs without waiting in line, and would just tell us where to go on what nights, made our lives easier when we were in Las Vegas. And the host told us that he was friends with another host, who hosted Peyton Manning and Dallas Clark, and that every year in the offseason, Peyton Manning and Dallas Clark would descend on Las Vegas, and that it would be this intricate, planned sex fest that Peyton Manning was almost calculating about the girls he wanted to be with and so on. And so when Peyton Manning and Dallas Clark would go to Las Vegas, it wasn't like John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. It wasn't that kind of experience. It was this contrived Vegas sex fest. And then you talk to people that work in the nightclubs and they say, oh yeah, we know Peyton Manning. He's a dirtbag. I even talked to the former girlfriend of Colts wide receiver, Anthony Gonzalez. And Anthony Gonzalez told his girlfriend that Peyton Manning is not a nice person, even to his teammates, and that he is a dirtbag off the field. But that's not the Peyton Manning that the public sees. Peyton Manning hides his true self during press conferences and we consume his commercials. That's the impression that we have of Peyton Manning, the aw shucks, affable Peyton Manning. That's not the real Peyton Manning. That is an act. Everyone that I have ever spoken to that knows of Peyton Manning's true behavior off the field has confirmed this. And I'm not judging the behavior either. I know a lot of people act like that when they go to Vegas. That's not a big deal. But I'm just saying that the same people celebrating Peyton Manning are also ripping Cam Newton because of behavioral issues. Ripping Cam Newton for being rude, for being spoiled. And I'm telling you that when the cameras are not on, Peyton Manning acts rude and acts spoiled. And I'm not judging them. Most people are rude and spoiled. And myself and most of the members of this audience have lewd behavior they're not proud of in their past. So I'm not judging. I'm just telling you that Peyton Manning is just another dirtbag in Las Vegas. He's not the funny, aw shucks, affable Peyton Manning that you think he is. But I will say, some athletes are truly nice guys. Everyone that I know that has ever had an interaction off the field with Tom Brady says that he is a great guy. Genuine, kind, 
but I do not hear those things about Peyton Manning. But you all have been brainwashed by the media and by corporate-sponsored commercials to believe that Peyton Manning is an aw shucks, affable nice guy. And he's not. And neither is Cam Newton. And that's okay. You want false modesty from your entertainers. Cam Newton can't summon it after his most heartbreaking defeat. And I think that's okay. I really do. It's just weird that you demand lies from your losers. Cam Newton is frustrated. Cam Newton is perturbed, but he's not allowed to show it. Why? You must hide it. We are asking you to lie. Sit here and act in a way that conflicts with your true emotions. We want disingenuous behavior from our entertainers, and I don't understand why. Listen to the questions they ask Cam Newton. Do you sometimes forget that defenses can still take apart the offense in this game? That's the condescending question that Cam Newton is hit with 30 minutes after he takes his gear off, concluding the most devastating event of his career. So let me ask you, can you put into words the disappointment that you feel right now? No! Get out of here with that question! I know you're disappointed, not just for yourself, but for your teammates. It's going to be real tough, isn't it? <laughs> what? What? Turning the knife is what the reporters are doing to Cam Newton after the game. Less than an hour after his biggest professional failure. If I were in his shoes, maybe I would have the composure to answer those questions after a couple days had gone by, after I'd had a couple days to process it. But not 30 minutes after I took my equipment off. <laughs> that is inhuman. These press conferences that these players are asked to perform, particularly the losers, the defeated, are asked to perform, these press conferences are cruel and demoralizing. The Players Association should make it a priority to remove the requirement from the losing player to attend a press conference after the game. In fact, all teams should encourage their players to not participate in these post-game press conferences because they are a farce. They are a coerced, inhuman farce. Did Cam Newton look like he wanted to be there? No. He was compelled to be there by a subjugating employer. I mean, I've had professional failures in my career that, to me, were huge failures. Nothing like losing the Super Bowl. Clearly, I'm not Cam Newton. But for me, I've had huge failures. I was a software salesman, and I've had big software deals that I had committed, that I told my boss were coming in. Software deals that were in my sales forecast and then suddenly fell through, fell between my fingers like a dropped interception. I would be on the phone with the prospect who I thought was soon to be a customer and have them go through all of the explanation and have them explain why they couldn't buy the software after all, how it would have to wait until next year. And I would poke and I would prod and I would try to save the deal and I just couldn't save the deal. I couldn't save it. And I would slam the phone down, I would punch my monitor, and I would be devastated. And the last thing in the world I would want to see are 30 reporters with microphones waiting outside my office. Or, earlier, when I was in a cubicle, imagine 30 reporters just popping up like gophers around my cubicle. Oh, hello, oh, hello, oh, hello, Matt. Hey, answer a few questions. Oh, hello, Matt, answer a few questions about that loss. Oh, hello, Matt, let me answer a few questions about how you failed. Oh, hello, Matt, how did that deal fall through? How do you feel right now about that deal falling through? Get the hell out of here! Get away from me! Get out of my cube! The hell is wrong with you people? What the hell is wrong with the reporters who take this job and the people that 
sit around waiting for the press conference to happen. The reporters and the viewers should be embarrassed because they're participating in a farce. When you participate in a farce, you should be embarrassed. And if you are the one being interviewed, the last thing that you want to show the reporter and then show the audience is swagger or disdain for the opponent. No, you can't do that. You can't show disrespect. You can't show frustration. No, we want you to camouflage it. That's right. We need you to lie. We need you, the entertainer, to train yourself to be disingenuous, just like Peyton Manning, so that we believe it, so that when you're lying, we believe it. Lie to me. Lie to me. I want to believe it. And if you don't, if you express true remorse and frustration and anxiety after a truly emotionally crippling professional defeat, if you're not classy, if you don't show class, if you can't fake it and fake the class, then we will rain down judgment on your head. We will pull off a mask and reveal a sanctimonious attitude that is just weird. But it's so common among sports fans and media members. And it's one of my great frustrations in this industry of sports entertainment. And it was encapsulated in that Cam Newton post-game interview, which just made me nauseous watching him have to endure it. And then watching so many people judge him for revealing his honest emotions. Now, my family, the Kelly family, we lost a sports fan recently who was always the consummate straight shooter. We lost him this weekend. His name was Pappy, my wife's grandfather. He was in his 80s. He was very old. His organs were ravaged by cancer. I mean, this guy, I couldn't believe that he was still walking around despite liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, tumors ravaging his body, and he was sitting across from me having a conversation. That's a strong individual. And they say this all the time. I hear this a lot, this cliche. They don't make them like they used to. Talking about tough Americans. Pappy was a tough American. And he didn't like disingenuous behavior. He could call bullshit better than anyone I've ever met. He had no patience for fake humility. Pappy worked at Harley Davidson. He was a floor manager. He helped set up the facilities in Wisconsin when Harley Davidson wanted to open a new plant in Milwaukee. He was one of the foremen who made that possible. And during his time there, he helped to invent the long-range gas tank. The long-range gas tank, which allowed touring on a motorcycle to be possible for the first time, allowed Easy Rider to be possible. So his ingenuity helped make that possible. He is part of the fabric of America, this guy, and he's gone. And it's sad. He'll be missed. Talked on an earlier show. We talked about how Jonathan Bales was actually the first person to call Allen Robinson as one of the top prospects of the 2014 draft class. No one was higher earlier on Allen Robinson than Jonathan Bales. And I was wrong because Pappy was on to Allen Robinson before Jonathan Bales was. I distinctly remember sitting at the kitchen table talking to Pappy because that man was a massive Penn State enthusiast. Loved the Nittany Lions. And we were just having conversation. I asked him, hey, Pappy, how does Penn State look this year? Ah, well, you know, he didn't fake it. He told it like it is. If Penn State wasn't going to be good, you knew they weren't going to be good. If Penn State was good, you knew they were going to be good. And that year he said, yeah, we're recruiting classes are young. We're still growing. It's probably not going to happen this year. But we have this one kid at wide receiver who is really good. He's the real deal, Matt. His name is Allen Robinson. 
damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Pappy was right. He was, he was so right. Alan Robinson's a hell of a player, and Pappy was a hell of a man. He'll be missed.